Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, usual homework for you guys. Follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Keep up with the show. Check out that new Hazard Ground website. Scroll down to the bottom of it. Click on that Amazon button. You know about the promotion. Guys, it's really doing well, so we want you to keep up the great work. Go to Amazon through the Hazard Ground website. Again, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button. Do your normal shopping. We will get a percentage of whatever you spend. We'll donate that percentage right back to the charities you've heard and featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes as always. Those help grow the show. That's so important. Don't forget to tell a friend. Guys, these stories are so important and so many people love hearing them, but getting the word out through the Hazard Ground community is the best way to continue to grow this podcast. So please do that for us. We appreciate you guys doing everything you can to help grow this audience. And with that, let's get on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is another member of the greatest generation as we hearken back to World War II, a former member of the U.S. Navy, where after his enlistment, he ended up becoming a cook and then eventually worked his way to becoming one of the first members of the underwater demolition team, what is now known as the famed Naked Warriors. He was also awarded three bronze stars during his time in the Pacific Theater. He is a lively and energetic 94 years old. He is Harry Lockhead joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Harry, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's not often we get a chance to speak with World War II vets, so I'm so very grateful uh, when we get the opportunity to do it. That said, you know, obviously times change and everything moves forward. And I just wonder how often you kind of look back to not only your time in the service back then, but just life back then and compare it to what it is now and how different things are. Well, when you've lived through it all, why... You know, it was nice and quiet back then, and everything today seems to be double time. So let's go back to the beginning of your naval career. How and when did you join the Navy? I was a senior in high school when the war broke out, and I knew damn well we had to win a war, so I said I wanted to enlist. I was only 17, so I had to get permission from my folks. They didn't want to give it to me, and I told them, what good am I working in a rice paddy with a diploma in my pocket? They figured that was a fairly good reason to go, so they signed, and I went into the Navy. Now, Harry, when you say the war broke out, you're obviously referencing December 7, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, correct? Correct. So you've had the fortunate or unfortunate pleasure of having that event happen in your lifetime, and 9-11. Are there any parallels between those two days for you? Mm, No, I wouldn't say there were any parallels. They were completely different to my way of looking at things. How so? Well, one was I was going to war, the other was I stayed home and watched it. (laughs) No, <laughs> I, I guess that's a fair, it's quite a clear distinction and a fair one at that. Um, 
But I, I guess where I'm where I'm going with that question is, you know, that feeling where you know America is under attack and our very livelihood is is being compromised. Did you feel the same sense of, you know, on nine eleven, like, whoa, here we go again? This is going to be, you know, a whole different world for America. Uh, yeah, I felt that, but uh, as far as entering World War II, I knew I could do something about that. But at 9-11, I knew I could not. Okay. Let's get back to uh, your enlistment. So when you enlist in 1943, um, how quickly do you end up actually getting to war? Take me through kind of the steps. Well, I enlisted in, I believe it was March or April, early spring, and I went to Great Lakes Naval Training Station. After finishing boot camp, I was sent to Purdue University for Cook and Baker School. Twelve weeks from there, I went out to California where I picked up my first ship. So that's when I started war. So you were assigned as a cook then, correct? Yes, I was a butcher before I went into service. I worked for my stepfather in a butcher shop. That's probably why they said, you know something about food, so you're going to be going in as a cook. Yeah, they didn't give you a choice of what you wanted to do. They told you what you wanted to do. Oh, gotcha. I mean, I guess I'm wondering, so you had this great desire to, to sign up and go fight the war for America. Did you feel like cooking was, was you know, answering the call, so to speak? Uh, no, that wasn't what my desire was, but as I say, they tell you what to do, so they gave me a job and I would do it. So your first ship is in California. Um, when do you get notified that you're going to be going to the Pacific? Well, we first, first ship was out of, uh, San Francisco. We were at, uh, Treasure Island. They sent it over to the to put a ship into commission, which was a cargo ship, a.k.a. 111. And we picked up a load of cargo, and within three weeks, I was on my way to the Pacific. What were you thinking and feeling at the time when you told you were going to the Pacific? Do you remember? No, it was just day-to-day routine as far as I was concerned. Did you feel like your life was in danger heading to the Pacific? I mean, was that even a thought? No, I didn't. Never, never gave that a thought. Had a job to do. Let's go do it. All right. So, what happens when you get to the Pacific and and you're you know on the the, the cusp of battle, so to speak? Well, on that ship, we took our first load of cargo into America, Samoa which was quite a long ride. We start running back and forth, bringing supplies into different islands in uh, Marianos and Gilbert. Anyhow, the first island that we supplied right at the invasion time was Anahuitaw. They invaded that, and we brought in supplies for them. After that campaign was finished, we start bringing supplies into different islands in there. And the next next one, big one, was we were 
they invaded Kawajaline. And we were in part of that as bringing in supplies to the troops after they landed. In doing all these supply runs, did you see any combat at all? Uh, other people were doing it, not me. But, like, was your ship ever in a firefight, so to speak? Uh, well, after Kwajalein, why, uh, we had concussion. We were never hit. We were never actually in trouble. But the concussion split a seam in the ship. So we had a hole in the side of the hole. And they did a ma- manage to patch it with what they call a sea patch, which is nothing more than stuffing canvas into a hole so that the village pumps could pump water out faster than it came in. And we got back to Pearl Harbor. When we got there, the dry docks were all full of warships. They had no time to work on a cargo ship, so they said, run it aground. We, they ran it aground, and the crew intact was sent to Seattle to put another ship into commission. So you had to go all the way back to America, across the Pacific. Right. Wow. To get another ship. Did, so they, I spent a, did they fly ahead. you back? No, we went back on an LST, which was one hell of a slow ride. <laughs> How long did it take? Do you remember? I don't remember, but I know it took an awful long time yeah. <laughs> on an LST to get back to the United States. All right, so then when you get to Seattle, um, what comes next? Well, we put the sec- second ship I was on into commission, which was an APA, auxiliary personnel attack. Loaded that, shook it down to make sure everything was fine, and we went down to Oxnard, California, and picked up a company of Marines. And we headed for Tarawa. So now you're on an attack ship. Before you were on a cargo ship, do you get a sense now that almost like, hey, this is almost what I signed up for? I wanted to get in the fight, now I'll be in it? I, uh, yeah, I don't, you don't even think about getting in a fight. You, you figure you're, you're doing your part of it, whether you're doing the actual fighting or just supplying. Each man has his own job to do. When you get to Tarawa, what happens? We unload our Marines, naturally. They go into the shot Tarawa. Uh, we stay moved away from it, from any airplane problems and what have you. After a week or so, we left Tarawa and we did not have one Marine to take back with us. Why was that? Because of the tragic loss of so many Marines. Oh, wow. And what they they had to do from each company, there were so so few left that they had to join each other to make a company of their own. So we had no Marines to take out. Was that sort of like a wake-up call for you? Or do you remember what you were thinking and feeling about that? Uh, Well, I felt I would do anything possible that I could to keep from that many Marines dying. 
in a Lieutenant Commander Kaufman, seen what the problem was there, and he had some knowledge of Normandy naturally, and he knew damn well, well, he knew, he figured that the only way to stop the death of Marines not getting to the beach because uh, aircraft surveillance could not do reconnaissance well enough because anything, any pictures they took, they never knew how much water was over an obstacle. Right. They asked for volunteers to swim in so they could check the depth of the obstacles underwater. And they said, well, if you find them, well, you might as well blow them up. He asked for volunteers, and 120 of us volunteered out of the fleet. So you volunteer to be this underwater demolition team. Did, did At the time, did you know exactly what you were getting into when they said, hey, we need volunteers? At the time, we had no idea what we were going to do. They asked for volunteers for swimmers and men, and we volunteered. They brought us in a group, and they said, this is what you have to do. Reconnaissance and blow up anything you find. There is no manual to tell you how to do it. You guys figure out the best way to do it and write the manual. So we went to work. Wow. Were you a good swimmer? Uh, pretty good in uh, any kind of athlete. Wrestling, track, great hockey player. Back that fact, I went into the Junior North Jersey Hockey League, which goes into semi-pro. Mm-hmm. So athletics was no problem for me. You know, you're out in Tawara in the Gilbert Islands, and if you look them up on a map, Harry, it's like this small little speck in a massive Pacific Ocean. Did you ever stop? To, did you ever stop to think when you're on this little island, like, you know, how how did I end? Like, how did I end up here? I'm in, I'm in the middle of this huge ocean on this small little island that isn't, you know, basically inhabited. We're just using it almost as like a, a position for combat. But I mean, it almost seems. Um, you know, when you look at the map, you're like, wow, that's, that, that would be a little bit daunting to just be stuck on this little speck of an island in, in the middle of the Pacific. Well, I didn't figure I was stuck because we had a ship under us. We could leave no. when we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> Again, fair point. Um, you know, <laughs> it's good that you simplify things for me, Harry. You know, I mean, it's a, it's keeps, keeps the train moving. Okay. Um, so when you get, when the 120 guys volunteer, do they take you anywhere and, and try to train you on exactly what you're doing? Or like you said, they just kind of literally threw you in the deep end and told you to swim. Well, we went to Maui, which on Maui was a naval combat demolition base. And so we had a base to train in to find out what we had to do, to figure out how we had to do it, rather. So we went to work, and one of, one of the things I and I think I did best was figured out how to deploy and recover swimmers without ever having to stop the boat swimmers were on. What do you mean? Can you be more specific? Like, what exactly do you mean? Well, 
to deploy and recover swimmers, we figured out we put a rubber raft alongside of our PR boat. The swimmer then would go out of the boat, drop onto the rubber raft, and then roll into the, boat, into the water from the raft so that they were far enough away from the boat that they would never get hit by the propeller. And you could do this while the boat was running. And to pick them up, we developed a two-loop two loop pickup harness. I don't know what you want to call it, but uh, we would have one man sitting in the rubber raft being pulled alongside the boat when the raft naturally was on the outside from away from the beach. So nobody seen what was going on. The man in the, the rubber raft would take a small end loop and it would look like a figure eight, the loop is that we made. And he would hold the small loop, hand the large loop to the swimmer, and being the boat was underway, the swimmer would pop up to the surface, and the man on the boat could just flip him into the raft. Okay. And the boat never had to stop. We could pick up the swimmer, so therefore there was never a stationary target. Wow, pretty innovative. Did you have to train on any um, explosives or demolition equipment? I mean, part of being an underwater demolition team is to know how to, to demolish things, correct? Well, we figured out how to read a lava flow. So there's no sense blowing a whole mountain of lava away. You just had to lift off maybe, depending on how deep the water was, four or six feet of lava. So as the lava flowed into the water, the way I looked at it, you got different lumps. So much lava would flow in, it would slow down. Another batch of lava would come in, and you had a seam there which was not solid. And we could lift that at that seam. We could lift off the lava above it and blow it into deep water. And this was the thing to learn how to place the explosives so that all the lava went into the deep water and none into the shallow water because that would just create another obstacle. Right. And we same thing with coral heads. We blew them and we kept working on it. If it took 24 pounds to blow up something, Let's figure out how to do it with 12 pounds because FedEx wasn't delivering explosives. We had to swim them in. So we wanted to do it with as least amount of explosive as possible. So then we just trial and error kept working until we found out the best way. And we didn't write, at least I didn't write the manual, but I guess somebody else did. Right. What sort of other obstacles would you run into that you had to, to get out of the way? And all of this obviously was just so none of the bottom of the ships got tore up, correct? Well, you, you have man-made obstacles. Aside, aside from the reefs, the coral, and the lava, the Japanese put out scullies, which are cement, triangular 
pieces of cement that had iron sticking out of them. It could be uh, angle iron, it could be railroad track, anything that would stick up that would rip the hole out of a landing ship coming in, landing craft rather than ship. And we figured out the best way to blow them up with the least amount of explosives as possible. Could you gauge how many and how often you had to do this throughout your time in the Pacific? Like, was this like a once a day deal or did it depend on what sort of the, it, the, the other missions that were going on? Uh, I had nothing to do with any other missions. You just worked day to day what was there. And that was what we reconnaissance was. You always made a reconnaissance swim to find out what was there. Sometimes there was a lot. Sometimes there was very little. Did you ever get any feedback on the work you were doing and how pivotal it was? Did any feedback? Yeah, I mean, like, did you hear from other units, uh, you know, other uh, ships that were able to, to go and do what they needed to do because of the work that you guys did? I mean, obviously, being the first underwater demolition team, there was a need for it. So clearly, it was an impactful mission, no? Well, as I say, we were, we were the first. I was the first of six teams. The 120 men that volunteered were divided into six 20-man teams. Abel Baker, Charlie, Fox, William, and X-Ray. I was an X-Ray. And we found out that one team could not clear a beach. So four teams had to work together to clear a beach. So therefore, Mr. Kaufman who was basically back in Fort Pierce, Florida, changed from 20-man teams to 100-man teams with four platoons. And this was basically my work rather than going island hopping in battle from one to the other. I was developing ways to do this so that he could teach the people in Fort Pierce how to do it. As they start sending teams from Fort Pierce into the Pacific, all the teams except Team 1, I don't know why they didn't come, but from Team 2 on, were sent out to Maui on their way to wherever they were going. Because there was no lava or coral in Fort Pierce, we trained, took 12 men from each team that came out, taught them how to blow coral and blow lava, and it was up to those 12 men to teach the rest of their team. So my, my mission basically was learning how to do something and teaching other people, rather than me actually going from island to island in a, in a battle. Right. How deep were some of these obstacles that you had to swim? Are we talking very deep or no? No. Uh, if it was very deep, a landing craft could come over. It wouldn't have to be blown. Right. So how deep are we talking on average? Do you remember? Uh, we had to, we cleared everything down eight feet. Okay. So that's the furthest you technically would have to swim is like eight feet or the deepest. Well, uh, there are certain places we went deeper. We went to 12 feet, cleared everything for 
12 feet because each landing craft come in were a different category. If you had a personnel landing craft, you, you only needed to cover five feet of water. If you have it a uh, landing craft mechanized, which would be carrying jeeps and so forth like that, you needed a little more. They also had a LST, which is a landing ship, which carried tanks in. So therefore we had to clear 12 feet of water. When we did that, we had to mark so that the landing ship knew exactly which part of the beach it could go on. Once that was done, why, the invasion would be started. Gotcha. How much, um, I know you talked about trying to avoid, you know, being a static target for the enemy. How much did you actually get fired upon or, you know, how much enemy contact did you see as part of the underwater demolition team? As I said, my, my job was figuring out how to do it and teaching other people. I myself never actually went in on an invasion. Okay. But there wasn't any, um, you know, uh, I guess Japanese reconnaissance that was watching what you were doing and trying to take you guys out. You you worked in relatively safe, relatively safe environments. I don't quite don't quite understand that. Well, I mean, if hypothetically speaking, and take it, this is an army guy talking to you. If we're going to go do an invasion on a hill or whatever, we'll send a recon team out to scout the hill on the ground. If they get noticed, they're going to be fired upon and, and you know, put themselves in a, a compromising position. I was wondering if that same sort of thing happened in maritime operations. No, because basically they didn't know what we were doing. Uh, a swimmer would be dropped off a mile from the beach. They'd go in to swim. Well, all you had, all they could, if the sun was in the right direction, they wouldn't even see a little head bobbing now and then. They, they didn't even know you were there for reconnaissance. As far as taking in your explosives, depending on how much you need, if it was very little, a swimmer could take it in, they still don't know what's going on. If you needed a lot of explosives at night, you'd load it onto a rubber raft, put a ton in it, and the swimmers would pull a raft in, bring it to the area where it was needed, stick a knife in the raft that would sink, and then, then all the rest of the swimmers would have their supplies right there, and they could put them on any obstacle that was in the area. I mean, that seems, it seems crazily advanced for the mid-1940s. Like, it seems like something we would do today that you guys were doing way back then. I don't think anybody's doing today what we did then. Because well, <laughs> technology, right? Not, well, well, there's, there's no more amphibious. Everything is done now through helicopters and what have you as far as landings and so forth go. It's either paratroops or running in. But uh, no, nobody. there's no more beach fighting. It's all inland today. So they're not doing today what we did then because... There's, no, there's nothing on the, They're not taking islands today. They're taking countries. That's a fair point. Um, how long did your tenure as an underwater demolition team member last? 
how long did I stay? Yeah. Uh, I went in, we started underwater demolition in December of 43. And I stayed in it until uh, April of 46. Okay. So along the way, um, something pivotal happens in Japan that sort of ends the war. Where were you for the dropping of the bombs? Well, the as I told you, they kept sending teams out from Fort Pierce. And there was always a need for replacement of men on those teams. Now, the only place they could get replacements from somebody that knew everything was the original 120 men. Every, every, every one of the 120 men were already battle-hardened. As I told you, I had Anoe Talk and Kwajalein. The other, we had them from Omaha Beach, Normandy, wherever. But that, everybody, all of the 120, and we were the 120, 120 men that developed UDT. So when these other teams needed replacement men, where could they get them? They took them out of the 120 of us. I kept doing that till there was only like 75 of us left. And we started bitching them and said, hey, we're doing all the work and they're having all the fun. And they says, don't worry, you guys have Japan. So I said, well, there was only 75 of us left. So they sent 25 men from Fort Pierce out we all joined together to make a 100-man team. Once we got together, we went for cold water training, and we started and headed for the invasion of Japan. I was actually on a APD, auxiliary personnel destroyer. It was what was carrying us to Japan when <coughs> my best friend, Harry Truman dropped the bomb. And of course, I didn't know, we didn't know what it was. They said, Adam Bomb had absolutely no idea what it was. And we kept going. Then he dropped the second bomb. And they said it would be, and <clears throat> they were surrendering. That didn't stop us. We kept on going. We were one of the first men into Tokyo Bay and UDG-20 went into the Okashuka Naval Base with, I believe, two other teams. I believe 18 and 19 went in with And they stayed there and blew up all of the ordnance and so forth that was there so they could not be used by anybody. And Team 20 went to the next island north of the mainland, and which is the island of Hakodate, because the knew, <clears throat> knew there was some shipbuilding and a naval operation up there. We, so we went up, found out that the shipbuilding was nothing but fishing boats, had nothing to do with the war, and the, with our naval training school, all of the students, or whatever you want to call them, 
had been discharged and there was only a dozen or so officers left at the naval base. So I took the head, or I believe the head officer from the naval base out to my commander, which was aboard the ship, the USS Cook, and he surrendered the northern island of Hakadadi to rather Hokkaido. He surrendered that island to UDT-20. Wow. What was that like for you uh, as they surrender? A relief. (laughs) (laughs) Do you get a sense when they surrender? Is it a feel? I mean, outside of relief, is it like we accomplished our mission? we, We did everything we were supposed to do? I mean, I've never had anybody surrender to me, so I'm just curious. Well, when they surrendered to that, I figured it was over, and I figured we did a damn good job. So they made us the occupation force there for uh, roughly three weeks or so until the Army could arrive. Wow, that is amazing. So when do you actually get to leave Japan? Uh, Well, as I say, I stayed there in Hokkaido for roughly three weeks until the Army came in. And, of course, we were aboard that APD, and they were assigned to take uh, troop ships to Philippines to bring prisoners back to Japan. So we were not ship's company, but we were aboard that ship, so we, wherever it went, we had to go. So we went to Japan uh, to uh, Philippines. From there, we finally headed home. We went then to Guam, then to Pearl Harbor, and finally wound up at Coronado, California, where they decommissioned the team. So all of this took about two months. What's it like when you finally put your feet down on the ground in the continental United States after everything you had been through? Felt felt pretty good to know that you nobody was going to die again. What was the reception like? There was no reception. Oh, really? <laughs> it was a naval base that we went back to. There was nobody there except other sailors and so forth. It wasn't like the people that came back from Europe that went into Times Square, New York. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. (laughs) We didn't have any of that. (laughs) Wow. Um, So when does your time in the Navy ultimately end? When did my enlistment end? Yeah. Uh, Well, we spent very little time in Coronado. When the team commissioned, it was decommissioned. Uh, We took a train back to New Jersey when I went to Pier 91, or, yeah, Pier 91, and stayed there because there were so many men being discharged. It couldn't be an immediate thing, so it was probably about two or three weeks in that area. And then I went to Lido Beach, where I was actually discharged. So from the time I left Japan until I actually got discharged was about 
three to four months. So did you feel like when you got discharged and it was over, and you remember going back and thinking, telling your parents, what good am I with a diploma in my pocket and nothing else to do? Now that you had done what you had set out to do, did you feel a better sense of worth about yourself and the decision you made? Yes, I figured I could do anything I wanted to do. And just out of curiosity, what was that? <laughs> what did you end up doing? Uh, right after I left the military, I became a carpenter. Uh, everybody said, you have to go finish your education. And what they were paying carpenters, I said, well, hell, the guy's coming out of college. You aren't making that much. So I became a carpenter. And I, said, I worked at that for quite a few years. And my, as I say, my stepfather had a butcher shop, and I was a butcher before I went in. That's why I became a cook. But anyhow, he was getting older. He needed help, so I said, he asked me, would I work with him in the, as a, in, in the butcher business? Anyhow, so I went back into butchering. Well, actually, a wholesale meat distributor is what we actually were. And uh, so he said, you know, come back with me. Uh, when I'm 65, you'll have the company. And I said, fine. So I went to work for him for a few years. He hit 65. I says, well, the company's now mine. And he says, no, you're not my son. You're my stepson. I'm not giving you the business. So I told him to shove it. And I went out on my own, started my own business as Teenage Incorporated, which was a resharpening business on saws, knives, veneer knives, stuff like that. Of course, selling band saws, anything in industrial sales. I wanted to ask, did you ever have a desire, or did you ever actually get a chance to go back to the Pacific, go back to Japan and, and see anything change? Was that ever a thought in your mind? No. I'd been there once, did what I had to do, and had no I no desire to go back. If I went back, the only place I would like to go would be back to Maui to see what is left of the NCDU base. Oh, yeah, okay, makes sense. Um, so when you look back at your military service, what stays with you after all these years? If you, if you could do what I did then, I figured I could do anything in life. So that's why I went to carpentry and I became a very good carpenter. When a wholesale distributor, no problem in the meat business. Maven owned company, Teenage Incorporated, and that worked well. I took over a abrasive sales company, Eastern Abrasives, became president of that. I wanted to do something I knew could be done. So, Harry, you are now 94 years young. Uh, any big plans for your 95th birthday? Yes. I, a good friend of mine, Jim Woods, who is a senior member of the Navy Leap Fog, him and I are going to parachute into the muster at the UDT Navy SEAL Museum. Get out of here. Florida. You're skydiving? Yep. That's going to be my first. Wow. What prompted you to do this? 
Uh, I've always had a very good liking to President Bush. He was the same as me. He decided to go into service before he got his education. He went into service. He lost a ship, which was an airplane, and I lost a ship. We had a little similarity there. When we got out of service, both of us made it, thank goodness. He married Barbara, and they were married all over 70 years. I married Penny, and that lasted over 70 years. For he was one, we were both president, president of a company. Of course, he was president, his presidential being a country, not a company, was a hell of a lot more. But he skydived at 90. So he was one up on me. At 95, I'm going to get back even with him. That is incredible, Harry. That is an amazing, amazing feat. Uh, that is just, wow. I mean, I, I have a smile on my face for you because, you know, the parallel and the symmetry and the fact that you're willing to do this, um, it, I, I think it's just, it's beautiful. Thank you very much. Well, certainly, Harry, I mean, your story is, I, I wish more people readily knew it because it's amazing. It has a, a lasting impact on the uh, history of our country, but uh, certainly with, with everything that you've done and, and the fact that you have continued to kind of tell this story and, and share it with people, I think is amazing. And certainly just uh, I appreciate you spending some time with us and uh, wish you nothing but the best of luck, best of health going forward. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to give you any information I could. Harry Lockhead, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. You're very welcome. It was an honor to be talking to you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Guys, as we get older, we all start to notice minor changes in sexual performance. It happens. But you can stop Mother Nature. Whether you're just starting to develop erectile dysfunction symptoms or are suffering from chronic ED, call Metro Men's Health. Skip the pills and injections. They're only temporary and lose effectiveness over time. Metro Men's Health treats the root cause of ED, lack of blood flow, so it works long term. Metro Men's Health uses the most advanced and clinically proven wave therapy on the market to actually repair aging blood vessels and restore them to a younger you. Get your spontaneity and your confidence back with safe, effective treatment from Metro Men's Health. Visit MetroMensHealth.com or call 833-687-0700. Don't let ED get worse. Call Metro Men's Health today, 833-687-0700, 833-687-0700.